This episode is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash best for your free audiobook download. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, Le Show, Countdown, The Onion Radio News, Tom Hartman, The Colbert Report, Rachel Maddow, The Daily Show, and The Young Turks. This show picks up with the coverage of the Afghanistan war that I wasn't able to get to before the holiday break. A November 18th headline in the Washington Post announced, Poll finds guarded optimism on Obama's Afghanistan plan. The Post has been pushing the idea that public opinion is more pro-war than it really is, and this seemed to be more of the same. The Post had just conducted a poll on the war, and they reported on the findings, quote, asked to choose between a larger influx of troops to fight al-Qaeda and the Taliban and train the Afghan military, and a smaller number of new U.S. forces more narrowly focused on training, Americans divide 46% for the bigger number, 45% for the lower one, close quote. So apparently, to the Washington Post, the debate is between a smaller surge to train the Afghan military or a larger one to do that plus to defeat bad guys. It's not a huge surprise, then, that a lot of people would find the larger surge appealing if you put it that way. But does that resemble the actual debate going on over Afghanistan? And why exclude the option of sending no additional troops or bringing the ones already there back home? The Post has done this sort of thing before, crafting poll questions that make opinion on the war seem like an even split. Most other polls, asking more straightforward questions, show a public eager to end the war. It's clear that the Post's editorial page is strongly supportive of a troop surge. Is someone trying to make sure the paper's polling helps them make that argument in the news page? We are young, hearted to heart, we stand. No promises, no demands. Love is a plan. And now, ladies and gentlemen, a new, hopefully soon-to-be, copyrighted feature of this very broadcast. I dare you to notice I just said something impossibly ignorant. We got two contestants today. Former White House Press Secretary under the George W. Bush administration, Dana, Dana Perino, and Democratic Chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Senator Carl Levin. And both of them this week said, I dare you to notice, I just, I dare you not to notice, I just said something impossibly ignorant. Sorry for flubbing the name of the feature. That's why it's not copyrighted yet. So first up, daring Sean Hannity not to notice that she just said something impossibly ignorant, former White House Press Secretary Dana Perino. There is one thing that I would say about Fort Hood that I feel very strongly about, which is, and I don't say this to be political, I think it matters a lot what we call it. 
and we had a terrorist attack on our country. And we should call it what it is because we need to face up to it so that we can prevent it from happening again. I agree with you. And you know, why won't they say what you just so simply said? It's, you know, they want to do all of their investigations. I don't know all of their thinking that goes into it, but... You know, we did not have a terrorist attack yeah. on our country during President Bush's term. I hope they're not looking at this politically. I do think that we owe it to the American people to call it what it is. We did not have a terrorist attack in the United States under the Bush administration. But let's call it what it is. Did Sean Hannity notice? He did not. You know, some, some bloggers did, but they don't count. Not when you're playing, I dare you to notice I just said something impossibly ignorant. And now, on one of the Sunday morning yak shows on Face the Nation, Senator Carl Levin, Democratic chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, responding to a question from moderator of Face the Nation, Harry Smith, asking about the strategy of Afghanization of the Afghan war. Can we really turn it over to the Afghan army? Is that really a, a plausible solution? Is this a doable mission, if it is, to be to, to spread the mission to the Afga Afghans? It's very doable. Uh, the Afghans are known to be fighters, um, and there's not that kind of ethnic division that existed in Iraq. There's not that kind of ethnic division in Afghanistan that existed in Iraq, said this, the Democratic chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Did moderator Harry Smith notice that he just said something impossibly ignorant? He didn't. Senator Levin to the words Tajik and Pashtun ring a bell. Thanks for playing this week's edition of I dare you to notice I just said something impossibly ignorant. President, it now falls to you to be both former Republican Senator George Aiken and the man to whom he spoke, Lyndon Johnson. You must declare victory and get out. You should survey the dismal array of options in front of you, even the orders given out last night. Sort them into the unacceptable, the unsuccessful, and the merely unpalatable, and then put your arm down on the table and wipe the entire assortment of them off your desk, off this nation's desk, and into the proverbial scrap heap of history. Unless you are utterly convinced, willing to bet American lives on it, that the military understands the clock is running, the check is not blank, and the Pentagon will go to sleep when you tell it to, even though the Pentagon is a bunch of perpetually 12-year-old boys, desperate to stay up as late as possible by any means necessary. Unless you're sure of all that, get out now.
We are at present fighting in no particular order. The Taliban, a series of sleazy political slash military adventures, not the least of whom is this mountebank election fixture Karzai, and what National Security Advisor Jones estimated in October was around eight dozen al-Qaeda in the neighborhood. But poll after poll and anecdote after anecdote of the reality of public opinion inside Afghanistan is that its residents believe we are fighting Afghanistan, that we, sir, have become an occupying force. Yes, if we leave, Afghanistan certainly will have an occupying force one way or the other, whether it's from Pakistan or consisting of foreign fighters who will try to ally themselves with the Taliban. Can you prevent that? Can you convince the Afghans that you can prevent that? Can you convince Americans that it is the only way to undo Bush and Cheney policy catastrophes dating back to Cheney's days as Secretary of Defense in the 90s? If not, Mr. President, that way lies Vietnam. If you liked Iraq, you'll love Afghanistan with 35,000 more troops, complete with the new wrinkles straight from the minderbinder lingo of Joseph Heller's Catch-22. President Obama will be presenting an exit strategy for Afghanistan, the exit strategy that begins by entering still further. Lose to win, sink to swim, escalate to disengage. And even this disconnect of fundamental logic is predicated on the assumption that once the extra troops go in, when the president says, okay, time for adult swim, generals, time to get out of the pool and bring the troops with you, that the Pentagon is just going to say, yeppers. The Pentagon, often to our eternal relief, but just as often, sadly, to our eternal regret, is in the war business. You were right, Mr. President, to slow the process down once a series of exit strategies had been offered to you by men whose power, and in some case livelihoods, are predicated on making sure all exit strategies everywhere, forever, don't really result in any serviceman or woman actually exiting. These men are still in what the belly of the, what President Eisenhower so rightly, so prophetically christened the military-industrial complex. Now... And later, as the civilian gray eminences with retired next to their names, formally lobbying the House and the Senate, informally lobbying the nation through television and the printed word to engage here or serve there or invest everywhere, they are, in many cases, just glorified hardware salesmen. It was political and operational brilliance, sir, to retain Mr. Bush's last Secretary of Defense, Mr. Gates. It was transitional and bipartisan insight, sir, to maintain General Stanley McChrystal as a key leader in the field. And it was a subtle but powerful reminder to the authoritarian-minded war hawks like John McCain and the blithering idiots like former Governor Palin of the civilian authority of the Constitution. It was a picture drawn in crayon for ease of digestion by the right to tell our employees at the Pentagon to take their loaded options and go away and come back with some real ones. You reminded them, Mr. President, that Mr. Gates works for the people of the United States of America, not the other way around. You reminded them, Mr. President, that General McChrystal is our employee, not our dictator. You've reminded them, Mr. President, now, tonight, again, remind yourself. Stanley McChrystal. General McChrystal has doubtless served his country bravely and honorably and at great risk. But to date, his lasting legacy will be as the great facilitator of the obscenity that was transmuting the greatest symbol of this nation's true patriotism, of its actual willingness to sacrifice, into a distorted circus funhouse mirror version of such selflessness. Friendly fire killed Pat Tillman. Mr. McChrystal killed the truth about Pat Tillman. And that willingness to stand truth on its head, 
on behalf of selling a war, or the generic idea of America being at war, to turn a dead hero into a meaningless recruiting poster should ring essentially relevant right now. From the very center of a part of our nation that could lie to the public, could lie to his mother about what really happened to Pat Tillman, from the very man who was at the operational center of that plan, comes the entire series of plans to help us supposedly find the way out of Afghanistan? We are supposed to believe General McChrystal is not lying about Afghanistan? Didn't he blow his credibility by lying so obviously and so painfully about Pat Tillon? Why are we still believing the McChrystals? Their reasons might sound better than the ones they helped George Bush and Dick Cheney fabricate for Iraq, but surely they are just as transparently oblivious of the forest. Half of them insist we must stay in Afghanistan out of fear of not repeating Iraq. While the other half, believing Bush failed in Iraq by having too few troops, insist we must stay out of Afghanistan or in Afghanistan out of fear of repeating Iraq. And they are suddenly sounding frighteningly similar to what the Soviet generals were telling the Soviet politicos in the 1980s about Afghanistan. Sure, it's not going well. Sure, we need to get out. We all see that. But let's first make sure it's stabilized and then we get out. The Afghans will be impressed by our commitment and will then take over the cost of policing themselves, even though that cost would be several times their gross national product. Just send in those extra troops just for a while. Just uh, 350,000. I'm sorry, did I say 350,000? I meant 35,000. Must be a coffee stain on the paper. Mr. President, last fall you were elected, not General McChrystal, not Secretary Gates, not another Bushian drone of a politician, you, on the change ticket, on the pitch that all politicians are not created equal. And upon arrival, you were greeted by a three-mile island of an economy, so bad that in the most paranoid recesses of the mind, one could reasonably wonder if the Republicans didn't plan it that way, to leave you in the position of having to prove the ultimate negative, that you had staved off worldwide financial collapse, that if you had not done what you so swiftly did, that this economic cloudy day would have otherwise been the biblical flood of finance. So much of the change for which you were elected, sir, has thus far been, understandably, if begrudgingly tabled, delayed, made more open-ended. But patience ebbs, Mr. President. And while the first 1,000 key decisions of your presidency were already made, and already made about the economy, the first public, easy-to-discern, mouse-or-elephant kind of decision becomes public tomorrow night at West Point at 8 o'clock. You know this, Mr. President. We cannot afford this war. Nothing makes less sense to our economy than the cost of supply for 35,000 new troops. Nothing will do more to slow economic recovery. You might as well shoot the revivified auto industry or embrace the John Boehner health care reform and spray tan reimbursement system. You know this, Mr. President. We cannot afford this war. Nothing makes less sense to our status in the world than for us to re-up as occupiers of Afghanistan and for you to look like you were unable to extricate yourself from a military Chinese finger puzzle left for you by Bush and Cheney and the rest of Halliburton's henchmen. And most of all, and those of us who have watched these first nine months trust, trust both your judgment and the fact that you know this, Mr. President, unless you are exactly right we cannot afford this war, for if all else is even, and everything from the opinion of the generals to the opinion of the public is even, we cannot afford to send these troops back into that quagmire for second tours, or thirds, or fourths, or fifths. We cannot afford this ethically, sir. The country has for eight shameful years 
forgotten its moral compass and its world purpose. And here is your chance to reassert that there is, in fact, American exceptionalism. We are better. We know when to stop making our troops suffer in order to make our generals happy. You, sir, called for change, for the better way, for the safety of our citizens, including those citizens being wasted in war for the sake of war, for a reasserting of our moral force. And we listened. And now you must listen. You must listen to yourself. Listen to your heart. Afghanistan is handed over to robots. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. As the U.S. military faces an escalating war in Iraq and heightened conflict with Iran, generals are handing off war-torn Afghanistan to robots. General Paul Horkheimer says the Afghan people are already responding well to their new mechanized rulers. The people of Afghanistan are accustomed to emotionless leadership, lack of humanity, the robots can give that to them. Sources say the new robot leaders can perform over 900 functions, including the call to evening prayer and the stoning of sinful whores. disappointed with uh, President Obama's speech last night. It, it reminds me of Nixon's decent interval. In, uh, we just need a decent interval in Vietnam, just a, a short time and uh, to prop up the government in the South, and, and they'll take care of everything. Right. And uh, he started his speech by saying that uh, we were attacked by essentially Afghanistan when we weren't. The planning for 9-11 was done in Spain and, and, and in Germany and in Falls Creek, Virginia, and in uh, Tallahassee, Florida. And it was done by Saudis, and it was paid for by Saudis and by the ISI in Pakistan. And I don't, you know, you won't hear Afghanistan in any of that. And this, this of course, according to the president's own, uh, the former president, but now, you know, Obama, the, the, the 9-11 commission. I mean, this is, this is the official story. The 9-11 didn't come out of Afghanistan. Now, sure, you've got training camps. You've got people learning how to use a machine gun. You know, we've had, as I mentioned in the last hour of my radio show with Dan Gaynor, 
you know, back when I was a, a teenager, when I was 12, 13 years old, and then went to a Michigan, a couple of Michigan militia meetings, and you know, f- learning how to use guns and stuff, and and it's because they were afraid that the the, the country was going to be taken over by the communists, or we would be occupied by the Russians, or there'd be a nuclear war. We're going to fight off the invaders. That's what the militia was all about. And in my opinion, my humble opinion, that's what the training is all about. And these guys, you know, you see these guys doing the barbells thing. I mean, so what? Is anybody stupid enough to really think that if there is an organization that is smart enough and dangerous enough to be a real threat to the United States, that they want to locate themselves or at least the smartest part of themselves, the most dangerous and potent part of themselves, they want to locate themselves in a third-world country where they can't even get access to a high-speed Internet line? That they would want to locate themselves in a country where they can't make a phone call? That they'd want to locate themselves in a country where the infrastructure of the roads are so bad that if you're, if you're traveling across the country, it's very, very easy to spot you with a drone aircraft? I mean, there's a reason why 9-11 was planned, assuming the official story is true for a moment. There's a reason why it was planned in apartment buildings in Spain and Germany. And, and, and it's the reason why Afghanistan represents no threat to the United States. And to the extent that this area is strategic, and I'll absolutely agree it's strategic. You know, the, the, the uh, Pakistan, a nuclear-armed uh, nation, India, nuclear-armed nation, at conflict with each other, right up against each other. The next country over is Afghanistan. The next country over is Iran. The next country over is Iraq. I mean, and then and you go in the other direction, the next country over is China. So you look at the situation. Yes, this is strategic, but is the way that you insert yourself into a strategic territory, a strategic area, by dropping bombs on them? Or by inserting military forces into them, I, I don't, I don't believe it. In my opinion, President Obama found himself in a box. He found himself in a in a very, 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 very hard situation. He's got the Republicans who are going to attack him no matter what. But had he said, you know, we're gonna we're gonna solve this problem in AFPAC. By providing them with, we're going to take their country from 10% literacy to 70% literacy in 10 years. Afghanistan. Afghanistan is 10% literate. I mean, uh, a question that I would ask a supporter of the war is, let's say we've won the war. How do the people of Afghanistan find out? They can't can't read the newspapers. Right? There's massive illiteracy. Uh, For example, so, number one, I would say... Let's do this right. Let's let's rebuild. Let's if we're going to do nation building, which is what we're apparently committing to, let's do it. But frankly, I'm far more and 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 there is a competition going on in this area, and the competition involves China and Russia, and Iran, because China, Russia, and Iran are working together on another pipeline project, not the not the Tappy Pop pipeline, but the IPI pap, pipeline. Um, the Iranistan, Pakistan, India pipeline, and uh, that ultimately may end up in China as well. Uh, you know, let's not discount any of that stuff. But again, is clumsy military force the way to deal with this? No, it's not. Now, uh, the war is now President Obama's war. 
You know, it used to be it wasn't Obama's war. It's now Obama's war. There's just there's just no other way to describe it. And now that it's now that it's Obama's war. Um, well, we'll see. I, I just, you know, I'm I'm saddened and disappointed. And I I am expecting that now that this is Obama's war, we're going to see a replay of the LBJ administration's uh, problems in many ways. Uh, there are right now protests going on all across the United States, people very upset, people out in the streets, people saying no to this war. Americans don't like wars. People don't like wars. War is organized, legalized mass murder. Uh, war should be should be outlawed. I mean, this was you know Wilson with his League of Nations. You know, the the war to end all wars, World War One. Let's have a League of Nations. Let's never again have a war. World War Two, another war to end all wars. Let's 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 you know, war war is the least effective way to solve problems. I've been criticizing President Obama for dithering about what to do in Afghanistan. Well, tonight, he announced that he will be sending in 30,000 more troops. I thought the speech was good, the plan was clear, and his commitment was resolute. Luckily, Fox News chief military haircut Glenn Beck <laughs> set me straight. Jim. If the commanders say, I need between 40 and what is it, 80,000 new mm -hmm. troops, and I need them, and I need them now, you do what your military advisors ask for on the ground. Who is the president? He can now uh, look at what the generals are saying and say, now, you know, I think I know better. Yeah. <laughs> Who is the president? <laughs> Obama is acting like some kind of chief who is commander of the armed forces. <laughs> And as usual, Glenn's analysis is firmly rooted not only in hysteria, but in history. Abraham Lincoln was extraordinarily unpopular at the first part of the Civil War. Why? Because he couldn't get any general to fight the war. Right. So he'd let them fail, he'd let them fail, and then he'd fire them, and he'd get a new general. Then that one wouldn't do it, he'd fire them, get a new yeah. general, until he found Grant. You listen to what the generals say. They are the experts. But exactly. <laughs> Listen to the people you are firing for incompetence. I do. That's why I've had so many appendectomies. And who, who, folks, who is the president to second-guess General McChrystal? Is Obama unfamiliar with the chain of command? 
Here it is, the army chain of command, okay? The president listens to the generals who take order from the colonels, who take order from the majors, the majors from the sergeants, the sergeants from the privates, all the way down the line to the cadets who take their orders from the Boy Scouts, who receive their strategies from G.I. Joe. All right, real American hero. What's that? What's that, Joe? What? You agree with Barack Obama. You're fired! Literally. Later. And I am replacing you with my little pony. What's that? What's that, Pinkie Pie? What's that, Pinkie Pie? What's that? You agree with Glenn Beck? Good girl. Obama, listen to your generals. I never meant to be so bad to you. Audible is supporting this episode, which I love because I've been using Audible for years. They have tens of thousands of titles, including audiobooks, newspapers, magazines, radio, TV, and premium podcasts. For this audience, I recommend they have the heavy hitters, My Life by Bill Clinton, The Audacity of Hope by Barack Obama, but my personal favorites are like Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them, Al Franken's latest book before he became a senator, and America, the audiobook, put together by the writers of The Daily Show. As a listener of this show, you can get a free audiobook to try out this service by visiting audiblepodcast.com slash best. You have to go to that special URL. That's how they know that I sent you and that you deserve a free audiobook. Audiblepodcast.com slash best. day before Mr. Obama's speech tonight, former Vice President Cheney gave an interview primarily about Mr. Obama's Afghanistan plan in which Mr. Cheney accused the U.S. president in legalese of treason and revealed not for the first time that the vice president who failed to fight terrorism had instead personally succumbed to its most insidious aspect, panic. In a 90-minute interview with yesterday with Politico, Mr. Cheney revealed that unlike authentically tough people, he is still so panicked that he still mistakes acting tough for being tough and makes the corollary error that failing to act tough implies that you are weak. Because apparently in trashing America's president the day before a vital foreign policy speech, Mr. Cheney cannot conceive that displays of grace and humility might arise instead from actual grace and humility. There's a guy without much experience, who now travels around the world um, apologizing. Uh, I think our adversaries, especially when all of that's preceded by a deep bow uh, to the head of government or whoever he's visiting, I think they see that as a sign of weakness. What did you think when Nixon bowed to Hirohito? The guy is the president of the United States, and if as a former elected official you can't summon up, just the boilerplate grim respect your former responsibilities still demand. Maybe you should just shut up, dick. Perhaps betraying just how effective terrorism has been against Mr. Cheney, he described himself as both worried and beginning to get nervous blaming Mr. Obama's policies for his lack of nerve, his deficit of courage, despite the fact that his own doctor has said, quote, there was real fear throughout Mr. Cheney's office after 9-11. Former Vice President even imagines others feeling his fear, claiming Afghan citizens, after eight years of Bush-Cheney dithering, will suddenly now switch sides out of fear if America says, as the President did tonight, it may one day leave. 
so cowardly is Mr. Cheney, in fact, that he trembles at the thought of an accused terrorist coming to New York City in chains. So lacking in faith is Mr. Cheney, or simply an understanding of America's strength, that he revealed he is afraid not of what a free terrorist might do, but of what a captured terrorist might say. Our al-Qaeda adversaries out there are going to think that this is a great... Uh set of developments for their cause, because one of their top people will be given the opportunity, courtesy of the United States government and the Obama administration, to um, have a platform from which they can espouse this hateful ideology that, uh, that they adhere to. Which administration distributed and verified all those Osama bin Laden tapes? Sadly predictable, perhaps, that Mr. Cheney thinks a feeble, primitive, fear-based ideology would benefit from exposure. But Mr. Cheney went further in his critique of the Obama's administration decision to put Khalid Sheikh Mohammed on trial, claiming, quote, I think it's likely to give encouragement, aid, and comfort to the enemy. The U.S. Constitution defining giving aid and comfort to America's enemies as treason. Former Vice President of the United States accused me current Commander-in-Chief on the eve of the presidential declaration about the way forward against the enemy of treason. Commander-in-Chief, I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan. We're in Afghanistan to prevent a cancer from once again spreading through that country. But this same cancer has also taken root in the border region of Pakistan. To abandon this area now and to rely only on efforts against al-Qaeda from a distance would significantly hamper our ability to keep the pressure on al-Qaeda and create an unacceptable risk of additional attacks on our homeland and our allies. Tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern, this year's Nobel Peace Laureate escalated the war in Afghanistan for the second time in just the first year of his presidency. In March, you will recall, this president announced that his new administration had concluded a careful policy review of the options available in Afghanistan then and had decided to send 21,000 more troops. To put that first escalation in context, this is what American troop levels were like eight years ago, the first December after we invaded. See that little tiny blip down there on the left? Uh, this is how they changed over time, all through the Bush administration and uh, through, frankly, the election of Mr. Obama. This is what's happened uh, during President Obama's first year in office. And this is what he's just announced he's going to do by next summer. And then nine days after that, he flies to Oslo to get his Nobel Peace Prize. The president's speech tonight at West Point, in a way, is an awkward bookmark to the previous president's famous West Point speech when the Afghanistan war was only eight months old, not eight years old. Our war on terror is only begun. 
But in Afghanistan, it was begun well. Turns out that wasn't very true. And eight years later, the next president is stuck explaining his choice among all the frankly, pretty bad options available to fix Bush's supposedly begun well war. But President Bush bragging at West Point about how awesome he thought things had gone in Afghanistan at that point is not what that speech is remembered for. President Bush bragged in a lot of places about how awesome he thought things had gone in Afghanistan, even as both Osama bin Laden and Mullah Omar, the leader of the Taliban, not only survived, but survived unscathed and stayed in business as militant leaders, just now relocated eastward slightly. If Omar went from Kandahar to Quetta in Pakistan, that means he moved slightly less than the distance between Wichita and Topeka. No, President Bush's West Point speech is remembered not because he was uniquely wrong in his comments there about Afghanistan itself. He was wrong a lot about his comments about Afghanistan itself. That speech is remembered because it was at West Point where he unveiled what may have been the single most radical thing about his presidency. Do you agree with the Bush Doctrine? In what respect, Charlie? Bush, what do, you, what do you interpret it to be? His worldview? No, the Bush Doctrine, enunciated in September 2002, before the Iraq War. President Obama tonight spoke at the site where President Bush unveiled the Bush Doctrine. The proclamation that the United States would no longer reserve the right just to wage war against countries or forces that threatened us, but that we would wage war to stop the emergence of threats in the future. If we wait for threats to fully materialize, we will have waited too long. The war on terror will not be won on the defensive. We must take the battle to the enemy, disrupt his plans, and confront the worst threats before they emerge. Before they emerge. Before they emerge. We must confront threats that might happen someday. And thus was born not only the justification for, in the name of 9-11, attacking a country that had nothing to do with 9-11, but also the maximalist Bush doctrine concept of America at war globally, indefinitely, against anyone at our own discretion. Our security will require transforming the military you will lead. A military that must be ready to strike at a moment's notice in any dark corner of the world. We must uncover terror cells in 60 or more countries. All nations that decide for aggression and terror will pay a price. The Bush doctrine was probably the single most radical thing about the Bush presidency because it dropped the requirement that the United States actually be threatened before we'd start a war with someone. Instead, saying that if we just thought we might be threatened sometime in the future, that would be justification enough for us now to start a war. It is a really radical concept, if you think about it, not only about war, but about us, about America. And it may have survived the Bush presidency. President Obama tonight explaining his second escalation of the war in Afghanistan, announcing that the 32,000 Americans who were in Afghanistan when he took office will become 100,000 by next year. A war reborn in what the president is describing as his own image, his own strategic terms, but which is justified fundamentally by what sounds like the Bush Doctrine. The administration admitting that we are not actually threatened now as a nation by Afghanistan. 
obviously uh, the good news that Americans should uh, feel at least good about in Afghanistan is that the Al-Qaeda Al presence is, is uh, very diminished. The maximum estimate is uh, less than 100 operating in the country. No bases, no ability to launch attacks on either us or, or our allies. No ability to attack us or our allies. Afghanistan poses no threat to us. And yet, our war there is being doubled and tripled in size. Why? It's because we think there might be a threat from Afghanistan in the future, if a safe haven for terrorism there reemerges in the future. In other words? If we wait for threats to fully materialize, we will have waited too long. We must take the battle to the enemy, disrupt his plans, and confront the worst threats before they emerge. Is the massive escalation of the war in Afghanistan announced tonight? President Obama's own implementation of the preventive war Bush doctrine that Sarah Palin couldn't understand and that no one's really been able to justify. This war is not about threats to the United States from Afghanistan. To the extent that it is justified by preventing threats to us from emerging from Pakistan sometime in the future, that's preventive war. That's the Bush doctrine and all its Orwellian extremism. To the extent, though, that this war is not about some potential future threat, but a real current one, like the president described tonight, a current one that, he didn't say it bluntly, but he meant it, one that exists in Pakistan, to the extent that our 100,000 troops in Afghanistan are there simply to backstop and contain the real war against the real threat next door in Pakistan, then tell me this, how are we fighting our war in Pakistan? We're fighting it using the CIA, which effectively functions as a fifth secret branch of the U.S. military now. They even have their own air force. They are a fifth secret branch of the military now, which our civilian leaders, as a matter of policy, do not answer for. They don't even bother explaining what they're doing. Do you remember when Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was questioned about our secret CIA drone war when she was recently in Pakistan? At the same time, the drone attacks are still going on in the Vizaristan. What does Madam or America in general plans to do about that? Because it's creating a lot of frustration among our people. Well, I, I will not talk about that specifically, but generally, let me say that um, there's a war going on. The Pakistan parliament, of course, has also requested that these drone attacks be stopped, yet they continue, and the Pakistan people have begun to resent them and associate them with U.S. policy towards Pakistan as a whole. What's important here is that there, there is a war going on, as several of you have said. Um, and I, I won't comment on that specific matter. I won't comment on that specific matter. I won't talk about that specific thing. But there is a war, that war, the secret one. Because CIA actions, even when they're a war, are covert and deniable. If the real war is Pakistan, and we're fighting this war not to prevent some threat to us in the future, not as an extension of the Bush doctrine, but rather to respond to a real threat now, why are we fighting it with our secret military that we don't admit to? Why are we fighting it with our CIA? Maybe there will someday be an Obama doctrine to replace the Bush doctrine. If that's going to happen, then first the Bush doctrine needs to be ended. No more wars to prevent future threats that may or may not emerge. But secondly, at some point, this president will need to be able to explain and take the credit or the blame for his real wars that right now are still getting only a no comment. If I get drunk, well, I know I'm gonna be a
The members of the Best of Left podcast are the wind beneath my wings. Their donations of as little as $5 a month are what allow me to keep this show on a steady schedule twice a week instead of just once as it has been in the past. In return, members receive access to the Best of the Left raw feed where they receive all of the clips that end up in the show, plus bonus material that doesn't make the final cut, and content in the raw feed is delivered in its original video format when available. If you appreciate the service that this show provides, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. We begin tonight in 2007. A war in Iraq was going badly. So President Bush proposed a bold new strategy, a surge of nearly 30,000 troops. Flash forward, present day, the war in Iraq seems to have stabilized, but the war in Afghanistan is going badly. This time, the problem will be tackled by a bold new leader with the audacity to change hope into what we were waiting for, which, yes, we can! What shall his answer be? I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 U.S. troops to Afghanistan. What the 30... <laughs> what is 30,000 troops the military equivalent of two Advil? <laughs> no matter what the problem there, what do you got a problem there in Afghanistan? Yeah, 30,000 troops. If it doesn't work, call my service. <laughs> Unless they've gotten to him. Maybe he's giving the same surge speech that Bush gave. No, that's, that's crazy, John. That can't be happening. If that were the case, he would open with some type of 9-11 reference. On September 11th, 2001, 19 men hijacked four airplanes and used them to murder nearly 3,000 people. <laughs> oh, don't worry. He said 9-11. You'll get your nickel. gets a nickel. Now, at least... We didn't even have to Photoshop his chest. Well, at least Obama's not dipping into Bush's well-worn bucket of fear. I am convinced that our security is at stake in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Al-Qaeda and other extremists seek nuclear weapons, and we have every reason to believe that they would use them. We have apprehended extremists within our borders who were sent here from the border region of Afghanistan and Pakistan to commit new acts of terror. anything after you said extremists within our borders <laughs> if you're really channeling channeling bush let me hear some of that absolutist rhetoric our cause is just our resolve unwavering our cause is just our resolve unwavering <laughs> want you reference vague and unnamed critics defensively knock them down. There are those who suggest that Afghanistan is another Vietnam. I believe this argument depends on a false reading of history. What the <laughs> All right, we're almost home. All you need now to fill out your Bush card is a not-so-subtle Freudian gaffe. Today, 
After extraordinary costs, we are bringing the Iraq war to an irresponsible end. Irresponsible end? <laughs> How are you going to sell health care? As far as my health care plan, all your doctors and hearses will be paid for. Ah! I meant nurses. Damn it. Is there at least something in the speech that shows you're a different kind of war president? We can't simply afford to ignore the price of these wars. Our troop commitment in Afghanistan cannot be open-ended because the nation that I'm most interested in building is our own. These additional American and international troops will allow us to begin the transfer of our forces out of Afghanistan in July of 2011. Our resolve is unwavering, but it turns out our Discover card is over the limit. <laughs> So bottom line, last night, all right, he wasn't necessarily Bush, but he certainly wasn't the communist Kenyan Obama we've heard so much about lately. Now it's time to turn the analysis over to our vaunted fourth estate. Not, not vaunted, what's the word uh, I want to use here? Televised <laughs> buckets. <laughs> you get a nickel for that too? You own the phrase <laughs> buckets? Let's not bother examining every network. Let's just go with the only two schools of thought represented by them. All right, the right. They hate Obama because he's all style over substance. Let's say how this speech played with them. And I think it was one of the worst speeches I could imagine in support of the right policy decision. It was badly uh, delivered. He was aspirational rather than being inspirational. I think you might need a new teleprompter with some uh, Energizer Bunny batteries in it. I didn't hear Winston Churchill. I didn't hear Ronald Reagan. Not exactly the Gettysburg Address. I'm sensing a no-win. <laughs> By the way, uh, wasn't the Gettysburg Address? Come on, the guy you like choked on a pretzel. All right, come on. <laughs> By the way, my guess is that if Fox News was around during Lincoln's time, they'd all over that speech. Oh, four score and seven years ago. Slow down, Harvard. Real Americans say 87. All right, so the right is bummed out. Well, then, according to the fundamental laws of political Newtonian physics, the left has to be elated. The United States should get out of Afghanistan. There's no sense of going after a clear-cut enemy. I don't think we're going to turn around Afghanistan in 18 months. A lot of Afghans don't want us there. What do we do? We have to kill all of the Taliban? 100,000 American troops to go after 100 al-Qaeda uh, terrorists seems a little out of whack. I worry that the 30,000 troops in terms of the escalation will just fuel the insurgency. Wow. So the right hated the style and the left hated the substance.
vote against funding for this uh, new uh, escalation in Afghanistan? The president says it's going to cost an extra $30 billion. Absolutely. You know, I started to raise this question in the Christian Science Monitor before we even knew who the new president was going to be. I didn't like the idea of the buildup uh, that started late last year and that put us up to 60 or 70,000 troops. I've been warning that this doesn't make sense and, in fact, that it may destabilize Pakistan, which many people agree with. And yet uh, they're, they're moving forward with, uh, without any, I think, serious regard for the regional consequences of this huge troop buildup. Uh, you know, th of course, very good point there. I want to go back to one quick thing that Wolf Blitzer said in the earlier clip. He said, well, what if we leave uh, Afghanistan and we lose? I mean, what a simplistic uh, way to look at it. Okay, if we leave Afghanistan at any point, we, we lost. Now, we're leaving Iraq, so is that a loss? Is, anytime you ever leave a country you invaded, is that a loss? What does it mean to lose and to win? I mean, to even frame it that way, so silly. It's just, it bothers me, to, but let's keep it going. I want to do one more fine gold, actually. I'm going to skip to clip number eight here, uh, and he's going to explain why the timeline to withdraw is not sufficient. Let's, let's hear him out on that. Then they, they can start withdrawing in July of 2011. In other words, a temporary surge and then the beginning of the, I, I guess, exodus. Is that, is that something unacceptable to you? Well, yes, because all you've got here, people are calling it a timeline. My timelines I've seen involve several points along the line. It doesn't involve one point in the future that could involve just withdrawing one American troop. There's no sense at all of how long we'll stay there. The withdrawal doesn't even begin for a year and a half, and then there's absolutely no commitment. Uh, to finishing the withdrawal. It simply says we'll begin a withdrawal. So, uh, you know, it's nice to hear the word, that, uh, the notion that we might not be staying there forever, but there's no meat on the bones. And so that troubles me a great deal. You have this huge surge of troop buildup without any clear exit strategy. And my question is, what are we going to accomplish with all the human sacrifice and economic sacrifice in the next three years that is going to be much better than what we have now? I'm extremely skeptical, and it will not help us in any significant way in the worldwide struggle against al-Qaeda, which is my priority, is the president's priority, and is our national security priority. You know, David Sirota wrote a column today uh, that was very tough on, on the president, and he said, look, uh, the only way you can do because counterinsurgency, if you wanted to do it right, according to the numbers uh, in the Army Field Manual, uh, you would need 600,000 troops in Afghanistan because of the civilian to troops ratio. 600,000, not 100,000. So now, you know, you can argue with um, whether that manual is correct, whether those numbers and those proportions are correct. But uh, Dave Sirota's uh, point overall was, look, 30,000, even if he meant what he's saying, doesn't get the job done, right? If you actually cared about stabilizing Afghanistan, actually fighting the counter, doing a real counterinsurgency, et cetera, et cetera, right? So why is he doing it? The only remaining answer is political calculation. And the political calculation is if you don't send in more troops, you're going to be seen as weak. Now, look, he's not pulling out of thin air. Sirota isn't. We see the internal deliberations of Lyndon Johnson and Nixon in Vietnam. And what they, even though they promised to withdraw, Nixon absolutely promised to withdraw. Remember another president promising to get us out of wars. Anyway, no, well, to be fair, though, Obama did say he would emphasize Afghanistan. So he's not going back on his word there in that sense. I want to be fair. But uh, Johnson and, and, and Nixon, they were both didn't want to appear weak politically. Escalation is always seen as strong. 
Makes sense, doesn't make sense, who cares? Now, look, it might be a very bad calculation because the latest Gallup poll indicates that 35% of uh, Americans are in favor of Obama's Afghanistan strategy, 55% are opposed. Those are terrible numbers. So you want to please the beltway crowd and get a pat on the back and say, oh, President Obama's acting strong. Lieberman is out there today defending Obama, so you know we're on the wrong path. And he's talking about, oh, how it's strong, etc. Good boy, good boy, nice job, right? Uh, and so, yeah, you win a couple of supporters inside the beltway, but outside the beltway, the American people have already turned on this. They get that it's futile. That doesn't make any sense. Oh, it's so frustrating. Okay, if you think all that is frustrating, I got one more clip here that's going to give you a historical perspective that's very interesting. CNN did a report where they went and talked to uh, Soviets as to their experience in Afghanistan, including one of their generals. I thought there was something very instructive in here, so let's watch that real quick. Clip number 13. They entered as a superpower with overwhelming force, but met tough resistance from Islamist fighters and were drawn into a grinding guerrilla war they just couldn't win. It sounds chillingly familiar, but this was the Soviet experience in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Afghanistan. And the former commander of Soviet forces there says by deploying more troops, Washington is repeating Moscow's mistakes. I can see only one difference it will make, that President Obama will be more often going to the airport to pay his last respects to U.S. soldiers killed in Afghanistan. And General Yermakov knows what he's talking about. His Soviet 40th Army battled Afghan Mujahideen for more than nine years. He personally oversaw the capture of Tora Bora, not once, but three times. Whether it's Tora Bora or Kandahar, the same thing is happening to the Americans. We would deploy troops in a particular area, establish order, place a popular government there and assist it. But when we left, that government ran away. Afghanistan was strewn with poignant warnings from that frustrating and bitter Soviet past, as we found in 2001 when we arrived at the new front lines. This is the Bagram Air Force Base, once a key Soviet base in its uh, occupation of Afghanistan. Let me just step out of the way of the camera right now and show you uh, the scene here on the runway. You can see the carcasses of these MiG and uh, Sukhoi fighter bombers lying all around here, simply abandoned by the Soviet Union as they withdrew from Afghanistan back in 1989. Now, as then, the war cost billions, contributing to the collapse of the Soviet Union. General Yermakov says the money could be much better spent. If the money that is now being spent on the troops is transferred to the restoration of the Afghan economy, its education system, industrial enterprises, that will raise your authority. War has never raised anyone's profile in Afghanistan. It only provokes resistance. By the time Moscow declared a face-saving victory and pulled out, 15,051 Soviet troops had been killed. What will the figure be before Washington leaves? All right, I, I take uh, issue with one thing that the general said. He said, well, you know, we put in a popular government, and then as soon as we left, of course, it would disappear and they'd run away. They never really put in a popular government. There is definitely a distinction between us and them in that sense. 
although the governments that we've put in are not popular either, okay, for different reasons. It's not that we don't intend well, and some could argue, but uh, there was a clear impression that the Soviet Union was taking over Afghanistan, whereas I think it's unfair to say that Afghan Afghanis uh, think that we are there to stay forever and to simply take over Afghanistan. Now, that doesn't mean they trust us. Here are the things that are indisputable. Uh, wasting billions of dollars on the troops, and all the troops do is they provoke more resistance. That's always been the history of Afghanistan, and that's still the history of Afghanistan, and it's the current day of Afghanistan, and we didn't learn any of the lessons that the Russians uh, learned over there. Uh, but the main heart of that clip, and the reason why I brought it to you here today is, I mean, when he said, yeah, Tora Bora, I took Tora Bora three times. <laughs> You're like, oh, yeah, this isn't going to work. I mean, it's futile. You, the British take Tora Bora God knows how many times. The Russians take it three times. We take it. We take it. We lose it. We take it. We lose it. You know what that ta it tells you? They're not interested in being taken. They view you as a foreign occupier. Certainly the Soviets, they did. But to a large degree, they do with, with us as well. Seen documentaries where you, uh, you talk to real Afghans on the ground. They say, what kind of liberating force drops bombs from the sky and onto weddings and civilians and kills family members? Now, we say we do it by accident, and I, I believe that. But by accident or not, you kill those people, and they're going to fight you forever. So how many times will we have to take Tora Bora and then lose it before we realize it's never going to work. Thanks for listening, everybody. And boy, it is excellent to be back. It, it kind of feels like coming out of hibernation. As I, as I got started working on the show this week, it, uh, you know, I was feeling kind of hungover and, you know, I don't even drink, but just this overwhelming feeling of grogginess and like, I could barely even remember how to work, but I, I muscled through and, uh, and came up with a show. Now, the answer to the question you have is I, I was going for the eighties theme to be very subtly reminiscent of the Russian war in Afghanistan, which took place primarily during the eighties. You get it now? Oh, yeah, that is, that's a little clever. All right, yeah. So anyway, now on to more important things. Next up is best produced. These are the top two categories. We're into the last two categories of the, of the night. And really, these shows are what we consider the best of the best. They're the shows that uh, really get the most scrutiny when it comes to uh, reviewing the categories, uh, making sure that the, the shows are, are really reaching a standard as far as website design, uh, basically making it easy for a host to contact the shows, uh, uh, clean RSS feeds, uh, you name it. We look at a multiple categories, and these two categories, the People's Choice and the Best Produced, really contain what I consider the top 20 shows that have been nominated this year. Um, and remember, number of nominations do not necessarily indicate um, whether show uh, made it into these top categories because of our grading criteria. But anyway, best produced. Best of the left, Film Riot, Inside the Magic, MuggleCast, NFL Rants and Raves, Outside the Cinema, Radio Lab, SDR News, The Signal, This American Life. 
and the winner in Best Produced for 2009. Congratulations goes to the best of the left. Great podcast. If you haven't followed it, uh, this is a, a show that uh, is widely followed by a number of people, and uh, they've done a great job. They've been here year after year uh, producing uh, great content. And I don't know if they're going to call in or not. We will see. And I feel bad that uh, some of these shows have not uh, connected in tonight. But uh, you can only do what you can do, reaching out as much as you can reach out. But if you're a Best of the Left fan, make sure you reach out to them and congratulate them on their win tonight. And, uh, and of course, uh, we wish them luck next year in the uh, 2010 People's Choice Podcast Awards. Okay, so that happened, and that's fun, obviously. Now, if you recall... I was in Copenhagen for the Climate Change Summit Talks, and that happened to coincide with the awards event for the podcast awards. So what you just heard, that little segment, happened for me somewhere around 3.30 in the morning, which is why I didn't attend live. So actually, the way I found out that I had won was when I woke up the next morning, I had a thank you email from Jank Huger of the Young Turks in my inbox thanking me for encouraging them to enter into the podcast awards because they had also won and then he mentioned offhandedly congratulations on your win as well and I said oh well look at that uh, apparently I won because that's what Jank said in in his email so a huge congratulations to the Young Turks for also winning their podcast award the best political podcast and a huge thanks to all of you who voted and to the Young Turks for encouraging their listeners to to support our show as well. So it's just a big, huge, successful, progressive love fest at the Podcast Awards this year. Now, as a side note, one of the other exciting things that happened was not just that the Young Turks won for the best political podcast, and I think that they deserved it, but it's also important who didn't win, finally, after years and years. And to illustrate that, I'm just going to play a clip from the Young Turks and their reaction. You know, in the podcast awards, we were up against, you know, you know the whole story, Rush and, and Bill Maher and all those guys, but also against Free Talk Live, and they're actually a juggernaut in this category. they got a lot of fans, and they're very active, so they uh, vote. In fact, they've won that best political podcast for four years in a row until this year. Mm-hmm. And he put up a post uh, on his website, okay? Oh. Uh, one of the hosts did, mm-hmm. okay? Okay. Four years in a row. <laughs> okay, Anna is so competitive. So. No, okay, go, go, go. All right, he says, I have said numerous times on air, I use the best political podcast award daily in marketing the show. I try to portray to advertisers that, yes, we do have around half a million radio listeners, but those radio listeners are not nearly as responsive and valuable as our podcast listeners. But we lost the best political podcast award by a hair's breadth, and I can no longer say truthfully, Free Talk Live is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on 60 radio stations coast-to-coast, and voted the number one political podcast for four years running. I have the little plastic trophy sitting here right in front of me to prove it. I would like to add some ideas uh, as to what I can say now that might be just as motivating or as close as I can get. Oh, that breaks my heart. Anyway, I enjoyed it because uh, I confess, and I'm the bad guy, mm-hmm. but there was a little like, oh, this guy really, you know, he was, they tried really, really hard, and we still won. Mm-hmm. So that felt a little good, you know, mm-hmm. and we tried hard, so to be fair to them, right? And they had won four years in a row until this year. Okay, all right. 
we're the bad guys. Okay. Uh, you know, we might have gotten the most votes for any podcast mm -hmm. based on the video we're about to play. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is the uh, video of us winning the award. Uh, or, well, it's not much of a video. It's mainly audio uh, of the podcast awards themselves. And it has information in there that I did not know before. Mm -hmm. So let's watch that. Shows up our best of the left. Common sense. Electric politics. Free talk live. Left, right, and center. Peace, freedom, and prosperity. Real time with Bill Mayer. Rush 24-7. Shire Network News. The Young Turks. And I'm going to tell you, before I flip the switch here, this probably was the most heated voting of all categories. And I think the winner should be very, very, very proud because he was able to outgun some of the big guns. Congratulations in the political category to the Young Turks. They did a great job. My goodness, I mean, it was a battle. And all of those shows received huge, huge numbers of votes. Congratulations to the Young Turks. So there we go. And then he continues talking for a couple more minutes about the Young Turks. So now finally, the, the last word on this is... I, just, I have to mention the great irony. For those of you who are listening, I mean, it was really not that long ago, maybe two months, three months ago, when I jokingly made a big deal about the fact that I had bought myself a new microphone. Well, for anyone who heard me say that and, and recalls, you will appreciate all the more that the prize that I won for winning the Best Produced Podcast Award is, of course, a brand new microphone. And not only a brand new microphone, but actually a brand new microphone from the same company that I just purchased my new microphone from. And it's that much more bitter for me, because at the time that I bought the microphone, I knew that I'd be entering the podcast awards, and I knew that the award for my category was a new microphone, and I was so confident that I wouldn't win that I went ahead and bought the microphone anyways, even though I considered not buying it. I considered waiting just to see if maybe I would win and then I wouldn't have to buy one. I was so confident that I would lose that I went ahead. Oh well, lesson learned on that, I guess. I'm not sure what lesson. Some lesson was learned, though. So that pretty much wraps up for today. Obviously, this show went long, playing the clips at the, at the end here, but I actually have to do a dedicated plea for donations i you know obviously i i talk all the time about how important memberships are and and for anyone who wants to throw in a couple of bucks for donations it you know all of it is a huge huge help and it it helps keep the show going in that i've made this a, a part-time job i really sincerely depend on the kindness of uh you know individuals who, who make donations or or any listener who actually signs up to, to do recurring donations through the membership program. And obviously those donations are contingent on the fact that I keep doing the show clearly. And this past month turned out to be a huge exception to the regular schedule. You know, I was planning on doing a, you know, a, a small vacation just for the holidays as, as anyone would expect me to. And then the business trip to Copenhagen uh, combined with it. And it just turned into you know, a massive amount of time, like three weeks going by without a new show. And that giant hole in the production schedule also blew a giant hole in the number of donations that came in th throughout December. So I kind of, it, this occurred to me 
when a friend of mine was talking about their Christmas bonus, I said, oh, Christmas bonus. Yeah, I've heard of those. It's, you know, now that I think about it, I kind of took a, a, a big Christmas pay cut. So anyways, I don't normally like to do this. I like to just have it be part of the natural flow of the show that I talk about memberships and donations. But today at the end of the year, you know, the very last show of 2009, I just want to do a dedicated request that if you have any holiday cheer left over or you want to have one of your New Year's resolutions be to support progressive causes in some way, a donation to the Best of Left podcast goes an enormous length. I mean, a $5 donate, you, you should see me receive a $5 donation. It's like fist pumping time. You know, I, I every single bit that, that comes in uh, is a huge help because it, it allows me the time to do this show. And I love doing the show to death and I couldn't do it without you guys. So enough said about all that. Donations, of course, can be made through the website at bestofleft.com. So that is it for today, and of course you can support the show not only financially, but also just by spreading the word. Tell five friends, tell all your friends, make sure to mention that we just won a major award. Of course, I had that phrase stuck in my head because I just watched A Christmas Story uh, the other day. Many of you will appreciate that. I think, I think I'd probably prefer the microphone to the giant leg lamp, but it could be a toss-up. By popular demand, I want to let you know that we have a P.O. box available. You can send anything you want to it. Send it to me, Jay Tomlinson, at P.O. Box 3451, Washington, D.C., 20010. You can stay connected between the shows, of course, by joining me at twitter.com slash bestofleft and facebook.com slash bestofleft. And, of course, the members of the show also have access to the Best of Left raw feed. I put all the audio, all the video clips that eventually make up the show. They all go in the raw feed, so you get all the news a lot faster, and you actually get to watch the clips, either on your computer, video iPod, whatever you have. And finally, links to the music and sources used in this and every episode are found in the show notes on the blog. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast, delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, thanks to the members and donors from bestoftheleft.com. The only maker that you wanna meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out in the open door This is not my life It's just a fun friend I want to friend It's not what I'm like It's just a fun friend Hi, my name is Mike. Could I have your ears for a real short rant? This message is totally unsolicited. In fact, the only way you could be hearing my message right now is because Jay heard this very same recording and gave me a little space. So, thanks, Jay.
Hey, talk about penny-pinching in this economy. I've whittled down a normal middle-class existence to my current bare-bones income, and I do it on early Social Security retirement. That's 25% less than regular Social Security. $5 is a lot of money to me, but I consider it important enough to give those dollars to Jay every month to further his great program, the twice-weekly Best of the Left podcast. So if you could possibly squeeze a subscription into your budget, do it. Hey, if I can come up with a fiver every month, I think most people can. And if you can't, keep listening, do those free things that Jay asks you to do, and then subscribe when you can. Thanks.